0: Let us pray. Loving God, we give thanks for the gifts you bestow on us, the gifts you bestow within us, the ways you entrust us and empower us and encourage us. May we sink into your words, your commission, that we may claim them, that we may have confidence in you to speak through us, that the words of our mouths and the meditations of our hearts may be truly acceptable in your sight, O God, our Rock and our Redeemer, Amen. And you go, proclaim the good news, the kingdom of heaven has come near. I keep imagining how the disciples reacted when they heard this commission from Jesus. I'm guessing that they were a little awestruck. Peter, who always seemed so eager to try things out, might have been ready to go. James and John, the sons of thunder whose mother wanted to know their place in heaven, might have felt like mom and dad would like us to step up now. (laughs) Judas might have been reflecting whether or not he was worthy to take on such a charge, or Thomas might have been skeptical and doubtful about it, or the tax collector might have just been saying, this is not what I signed up for, <laughs> as well as the fisherman. It's a daunting charge. Go to the lost sheep of the house of Israel, your own people, Proclaim this good news, that the kingdom of heaven has come near, and then go on, just as you have seen me do, and cure the sick, raise the dead, cleanse the lepers, cast out demons, give without any expectation of payment, don't take any gold or silver or copper with you, or even extra clothing. It's a big, tall order. And they've been watching him do all this work himself for quite some time, but I'm guessing they didn't imagine that he would actually ask them to do the same thing. Perhaps they wanted just a little bit more training before he would send them out among the wolves to be as wise as serpents and innocent as doves. It's probably been a moment in your own life when this sort of thing happened, when someone teaching you or guiding you handed over the reins to you and said, go ahead, take a try. Perhaps it was the first time you led hymns in worship, or the first time that you actually did the spreadsheet and the budget yourself, or perhaps it's the first time you had to give an injection and stick that needle in someone instead of just an orange. As I look at the scar from my recent surgery, I keep thinking, you know, it takes a lot of nerve to cut into someone like that. I wonder about the first time he did that, and now has done it thousands of times ever since. One of the great joys I've had in serving over the past three and a half years here are our relationship with our seminarians, our two seminarians, Sydney and Lindsay, who have come to us to grow and to deepen and to change, and you all have reflected how you've seen that. And there are those moments when we turn over the reins for them to preach their first sermon or lead the first prayers or organize their first worship service or chair their first committee meeting, in which they step in with a little trepidation but knowing their past experience. And it's been a great joy, especially the biggest joy, to hear in both cases their parents say to me how much they have seen these two people grow and change and deepen in our midst because of the training and the love and the care that we all gave them. (laughs) Listening to this story and thinking about Jesus giving them this charge made me think of a story about my own father, which seems appropriate on this holiday, I think only I've told staff and family this story before. I haven't shared it with all of you, but here goes. When I was 18, my father, who had been working in a dreadful job that was driving him crazy and boring him to death, had the opportunity to buy, with appropriate financing, a sort of steel business, a business that was laying steel, fo- steel beams in foundations and cutting them to size, helping contractors go ahead and build the rest of the house. It was a big change for him. He became an entrepreneur overnight, and he loved it. People had never seen him happier. That first summer, I learned to blowtorch and weld, and also to lift big beams with a boom out of the truck and into a house foundation. It may be hard for you to imagine me doing that. It's hard for You don't have to laugh that much, but it's hard for me to imagine myself doing that in retrospect. There was also a flatbed, one-ton truck that came with the business, which was useful for hauling steel around town. You could pack up to one ton on it. It was Stick Shift, an old, rusty Ford that had a big gear right in the middle for manual transmission. And one day, my father asked me to take a load of about half a ton of steel up about 20 miles away. And I said to him, you know, I don't really know how to drive a Stick Shift. And he said, that's crazy, you've been doing this your whole life. Because from an early age, my father had me get on heavy machinery like tractors and start driving them up and down the field or the riding lawnmower. And I knew the basics of manual transmission, but usually you stayed in one gear for a good long time and then just slowed down slightly before you turned around and sped up to five miles an hour. So I said, you know, I, I don't. it's a little different taking a load of steel 20 miles away on the highway. And he said, well, when were you going to learn? And I said, I figured when I had some friend's old Dodge Omni in the high school parking lot. And he said, no, 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 you take this load of steel up to North Kansas City, you'll figure it out. My first stop was on an incline as I was about to get on Interstate 70 with a little Dotson behind me and I quivered over the clutch and the accelerator and the gear shift, but I managed to grind the gears all the way up to North Kansas City and back, and delivered the Lotus deal and drove that truck the rest of the summer. His other workers, who were much more skilled driving trucks, would occasionally let me drive and just laugh at me the whole time. Shouldn't have been so strange because this is also the man who, when we took a family vacation to Europe for the first time, set me loose by myself in the Amsterdam train station at age 14 and said, take that train to Cologne where there's a big cathedral and then you'll switch trains to Trier and your relatives should be meeting you at the other end. Now, in those experiences, I was a little fearful, but as I've grown older, they have become cornerstone stories about who I am because it showed that my father believed in me even more than I believed in myself, that he had faith that I could figure it out. I often tell our seminarians this story because if they ever feel like they've been tossed out to the deep end and don't have the appropriate life raft, I want them to tell me, because that's how I figure you learn how to do things, is just by figuring it out. I like to think that as Jesus gave this commission, he had the same attitude as my father. I've seen you. I know you, I trust you, and I have faith. I believe Jesus still wants to say that message to all of us. I imagine what he would say to us today if we were on the hillside and he were giving us this commission. As I look out at the congregation and the Christians I've known, I realize that many of us here are in the business of cleansing lepers in our own day, of helping treat patients in the hospitals, in the clinics. Many of us are people who help cast out demons, perhaps those that people feel realistically chased by or bad memories or trying to overcome whatever is going on in their psyches that limits them, trying to heal and to help. I'm not sure that we are asked to go around and raise the dead, but perhaps we're invited to breathe new life into dead places, into places that need some hope and some good news. I'm aware of those of us who are teachers and parents and guides in all the multiplicity of vocations that are chosen in this room how we're still called to be disciples to bear the kind of good news that Jesus would ask us to do. The question I'd like to leave you with is just like the disciples, we are ordinary people given ordinary gifts, some of us in greater proportion than others, but How much does God believe in you? Believe in the gifts that you have been given, the unique gifts that only you possess in your particular combination, and entrust you to go out and to do the work that needs to be done, to share love and compassion wherever you go, to help those who are vulnerable. As I was listening to the text this week, I kept thinking also of another question. How far are we willing to go with discipleship? I kept thinking of Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who was born in 1906 and who was born into an esteemed family. His father was a noted psychologist. He had classical music. One of his nephews has gone on to be one of the great conductors of the 20th century. He had music and intellect and faith. But at age 14, he said, I'm going to be a theologian. And he followed that path as far as he could. As a young man, he was invited to take a professorship at Union Seminary in New York. But at that time, fascism was rising in Germany. And he said, I need to live my faith out there. You see, at that time, the German church was sort of divided into factions, one that supported Hitler and said that Jews should have no place in the churches. And then others who were not so sure. But all of them felt we should help those people being oppressed. Bonhoeffer founded an underground church, the Confessing Church, that was trying to go beyond just singing the hymns and saying the prayers and showing up, but actually what it means to live your faith and actually go through the cost of discipleship. He critiqued the sermons he heard in the United States as not saying enough about confession, or repentance, or bearing the cross. The really hard stuff of what it means to be a disciple. The times that you are sent out among the wolves, times that you are persecuted for your faith as we see now in places like Syria or the Philippines or Africa. So it made me wonder about what it means to be called to this work of faithfulness. You see Bonhoeffer said we need not just care for the people being crushed by the wheel of fascism but we need to put something to stop the spoke of the wheel. And for that he was imprisoned and later assassinated by the edict of the Fuhrer just days before the Nazi empire fell. Bonhoeffer is an extreme of faith and discipleship as is Dorothy Day or Mother Teresa or Joan of Arc or many disciples. And you and I may not be called to those extremes, but we are called to speak up on behalf of love and justice even when it asks for us to resist even when it asks for us to make unpopular stands, even when it means we may disagree among the faithful, but to listen carefully for what Jesus is saying to us, not only in this passage, but other places. But the most important thing is to love our neighbor as ourselves, to love God and the things that God loves with all our heart, our soul, our minds, our strength, and our imagination to take care of the vulnerable, the sick, the homeless, the person in prison, the thirsty, and the hungry, and to show up. You see, I believe that when we come to worship, and if I understand this correctly, I believe our God is a God of possibility, one who believes in us and empowers each of us with certain gifts, certain temperaments, certain abilities, and our job, if I understand it correctly, is to get sufficiently in tune with our Creator again and again to understand those gifts and abilities, and as the Scripture says, let the Spirit of God the Creator speak through us and work through us. This is our commission, to love and to act for justice and to figure it out as a community so that we may make a difference in the world. Amen.